preach the word in season preach the word out of season preach the word with great patience and instruction preach with patience preach with patience and instruction The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So let's now open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the Scriptures and let them speak. Uh, why don't you take your Bibles if you're already there, First Peter chapter 3, and uh, uh, we're back again in this uh, wonderful epistle, and uh, just as an overview as you're uh, looking there in First Peter chapter 3 for the, the book of First of Peter overall, uh, the book of First Peter can really be divided up into four different sections. Uh, the, the first heading could be titled Salvation, uh, from chapter 1 to chapter 1 in verse 12, uh, Peter blesses God who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. And it speaks about uh, this, this great salvation uh, that we have in uh, this first section of the book. In verse 5, we're protected by the power of God through faith for salvation. Uh, verse 9, we're obtaining as the outcome of our uh, faith the salvation of our souls. And uh, verse 10, uh, it's to this salvation that the prophets prophesied. So that first section of First Peter speaks about salvation, all the glories of salvation. Uh, the second section of Peter could be titled Sanctification. And this is where Peter transitions from the blessed hope and delight of our salvation to the blessed duty of our salvation. Now, the reality that our salvation uh, now leads us into, uh, that uh, we're to prepare our minds in verse 13 for action. You know, keep sober in your spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you. Uh, to be obedient children in verse 14. To be holy yourselves in all your behavior, verse 15. To uh, conduct yourselves in fear in verse 17. And uh, to be uh, obedient and, and obedience to the, the truth. We've purified our, our souls in verse 22. So this second section really speaks about our sanctification, our growth in holiness. It's our growth in, in holiness, keeping our behavior excellent among the, the Gentiles, it says in chapter 2 and verse 12. Uh, so you have that, that first section, salvation. The second section, sanctification. The third section of Peter could be titled Submission, and uh, we spent a while uh, just covering the different aspects of biblical submission. In uh, verse 13 in chapter 2, we're to submit ourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Uh, Servants are to be submissive to masters. Wives are to be submissive to their own husbands. And then it ends with the word for husbands to submit to God by dwelling with their wives in an understanding way, walking in uh, sympathy and harmony and humility. All of us are to be walking in that way. So submission characterizes that third section of the book of Peter. And the fourth section of the book of Peter could be titled Suffering. And that's the section that we began last week, a section on suffering. It starts in chapter 3 and verse 13. And carries all the way throughout the end of the book. And uh, it's not that suffering hasn't been addressed before, but this is where it's like the, the floodgates are opened and suffering is just allowed to run its free course throughout the rest of the book of First Peter. And what makes this suffering so particularly challenging in First Peter is that it's not just some kind of generic suffering that we all experience in a fallen world. You know, it's not like the, the storm that passes uh, through your area where, where everybody's power goes out. 
And it's just like, hey, well, you know, we've got to deal with it. Everybody's dealing with the, the same thing. Or like the, uh, the earthquake that uh, rocked part of California on, on Friday, uh, there were no immediate damages or injuries, but everybody across Southern California felt the same thing, including my daughter, who's in Southern California, who was underneath her bed while the, 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 the room that she was in was, was rocking back and forth and, and bouncing up and down. But it's just part of living in a fallen world. And California is a fallen world, right? <laughs> the fallen world of California. And we experience so much of the, the pains and the miseries of Genesis 3 every day. We live in a fallen, infected world. Romans chapter 8 says the creation itself does what? It groans. Creation groans. Like the world around us is groaning, longing to be set free. Romans chapter 8, verse 22, it suffers the pains of childbirth until now. We live in a world of, of suffering, a world filled with natural disasters and disease and death, a world that's filled with viruses, and we all understand that. You can't avoid it. You can't escape it. Even if you're in the safety of your own room, you can still literally have your world rocked by the suffering of the world that we live in. That's not the kind of suffering that Peter addresses here. It's not just referring to general suffering, natural suffering that we all experience. He's referring to the kind of suffering that we experience at the hands of fallen people. Not just the fallen world, fallen people. People who will do us wrong. People who will bring us harm. And it would be one thing if we could think of a reason for the harm that's brought to us. You know, 1 Peter Chapter 2 and verse 20 says, For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? You know, if I was reprimanded and let go from my job because of something that I did that was wrong, you know, I could deal with it a little bit easier, right? You know, if I get pulled over on the side of the road because I was speeding, you know, I, I have a little easier time taking the ticket, right? Because I know I did wrong. You know, in Acts chapter 25, Paul stood for serious charges uh, against his fellow Jewish people, he stood before a, a Roman governor, the Roman governor of Judea, and he says, if I'm a wrongdoer and I've committed anything worthy of death, I don't refuse to die. Like, like if I've done something to deserve this, I don't refuse the punishment. But what if you're punished for something when you actually were doing what was right? That's, that's a whole different story, isn't it? And there are some of you who are even now feeling the, the pressures of, of simply standing for your convictions. Parents feeling the, the pressure in the public school system because of the godless ideologies that are being presented and they, they just convictionally can't allow their kids to participate in the activities and celebrations that are simply par for the course today. Employees being forced to make tough decisions because they can in good conscience comply with their company's mandates and regardless of what your position might be, it's not the government's job to dictate those. Churches under mounting pressure, governments right now considering legislation that could limit the kind of counsel that we could give. The society around us is trying desperately to squeeze us into its own mold, trying to force us to adopt their views on identity, sexuality, morality. And now we're considered the ones who are the danger to society. And like I mentioned last time, the protections and privileges and promises that we took for granted in our nation are quickly evaporating and and that's not an idle threat. But the first section of First Peter, right here as we look into chapter 3, reminds us that there's a blessedness that believers can enjoy even in the face of a godless and hostile society. 
Let's look at it again. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 13. It says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. And do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you and and confess our need once again for you. Every time we open this book, we're reminded that we hold in our hands the very breath of God, and we would ask you to make your word plain to us, to open our eyes, that we may behold wonderful things in your word. Help us to apply what we learn. Help us to practice the things that we learn, that, and help us to trust you, to trust your word. Father, strengthen those of us who are weak. Give clarity to those who are confused. Comfort the faint-hearted And I pray that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. The last time we were uh, together in this passage, we observed the kind of of freedom that believers are to pursue even in the midst of a a godless and hostile society. Uh, Number one that we looked at, we're to pursue a freedom from unnecessary harm and suffering. And this relates to our conduct as believers. Verse 13, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous For what is good? We pointed out last time that that uh, adjective zealous is actually a noun in the Greek language. You know, it speaks about uh, uh, being zealots for what is good. You know, the the zealots were a a militant, revolutionary, anti-Roman political party uh, that were so committed to freedom that they would kill or be killed for it. And Peter says, you should be just as committed to doing what is good, even if you suffer for doing what's right. It says do good. Even if you suffer for being harmonious and sympathetic, keeping your tongue from evil, from seeking peace, even if you suffer for doing those things, you know, to, to trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. 1 Peter 3 and verse 10 says we can live life and see good days. We can avoid a lot of unnecessary trouble if we keep away from strife because we're to be peacemakers and not troublemakers. You know, we're missionaries, not revolutionaries. We should pursue the path of, of peace, 1 Timothy 2 and verse 1 says, First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions, thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all those who are in authority. Why? So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life. Like that's the kind of life that we should want to live as Christians. I, I just want to live a, a life of peace. I want to be at peace with those around me. But there's also a time when suffering becomes necessary for the sake of righteousness, because we have to stand by our convictions. And when you do suffer for doing what is right, the Bible says you're to look at yourself as being blessed. I'm, I'm blessed by God. You know, the, the, the disciples in Matthew 5 were told that uh, they were to be considered blessed, even if they suffered, because it was an evidence that they belonged to the kingdom of heaven, that they were being rewarded by God. They're in the company of the prophets, even Christ himself that it glorifies God and it shines the light of the gospel before men. So, so it's a blessing even if you suffer, if those are the results. And so we should consider it a privilege to suffer for the name of Christ. But not only that, uh, we can also experience a, not only a, a freedom from unnecessary harm and suffering by doing what is right, 
you know, and all the suffering that we receive, just receive that as a, a necessary uh, providence of God. Uh, but we can also experience a freedom from unwanted intimidation and distress. And this refers to our confidence before the Lord. We're not to, to fear. Uh, we're not to be troubled. We're not to be distressed. You know, last time we looked at uh, Isaiah chapter 8 where Peter was quoting from, speaking about a, a nation who has enemies on all sides, uh, uh, an army that's, that's marshalling its forces against them. And uh, Isaiah turns to this nation and says, take care, be calm, don't fear, don't be faint-hearted. You don't have to fear what everybody else fears. You don't have to fear their intimidation, but who are you to fear? You are to fear the Lord of hosts. <laughs> He, he is the one you're to regard as holy. He shall be your fear. He shall be your dread. And Judas' greatest problem wasn't the, the enemies from the outside, but it was the enemies on the inside, that they weren't properly viewing God. And if you've set Jesus Christ apart as Lord in your hearts and you regard him as holy, it will drive out the fear of the intimidation around you. If you have a greater fear for Christ on the inside, it will drive out the fears of what's going on on the outside. And that's the kind of comparison that Peter's making back to Isaiah chapter 8. Don't compromise. Fear the Lord. Trust in God. And the same God that the children of Israel were to regard as holy is the same God of the New Testament that you are to regard as holy. And who is that God according to 1 Peter chapter 3? That God is Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's Jesus that we are to regard as holy. So Peter's making a connection that the God of the Old Testament is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God. And you are to fear him, regard him as holy. Number three in our list is uh, our, our commitment. And uh, this is foundational in this context uh, because uh, this is where we're told that our commitment is to be to the Lord himself. Again, in verse 14, second part of verse 14, do not fear their intimidation, do not be troubled, but do what? Sanctify Christ as Lord. Sanctify Christ as Lord. Sanctifying Christ as Lord, where? In your hearts. And this is in contrast to fear. The, the, the solution for fear is sanctifying Jesus Christ. You know, so again, when you find somebody that's unwilling to take a stand for truth, especially when they're asked a direct question and they squirm and fidget and they beat around the bush and take a left turn and hem and haw over an answer, it's because they haven't elevated Christ as Lord in their hearts. And they're more fearful of, what I'm going to receive from the people on the outside than having to answer to Christ you know, for what I've done against him. I, I need to elevate him. He is my fear. And I don't mind taking a stand for Jesus Christ. The word sanctify, sanctifying Christ as Lord, uh, it's the Greek word hagiadzo. means to, to make holy, to set apart as holy, to consecrate as holy. It's uh, from a, a related Greek term, hagias. And Peter makes it clear that We've been sanctified and set apart by God. Uh, we learned about that earlier in First uh, Peter chapter 1, that we've been chosen by him according to the foreknowledge of God. But in what way do I sanctify Christ? <laughs> I know that I'm sanctified by him, but how do I sanctify Jesus Christ? We know that we're to be holy, but how am I to sanctify Christ as holy? It's a command. What, how do I understand that? I mean, Jesus is already holy, right? He's called the, the holy child, the holy one of God. How do I sanctify the one who's already sanctified? And if you look at the text again, it actually gives us an understanding of what this means. Because first of all, it tells us where this is supposed to happen. It's supposed to happen in your hearts. Sanctification of Christ, sanctifying Christ, setting him apart, takes place within your heart. It takes place within the inner man. 
So sanctifying Christ is about something that we do internally. And what are we supposed to be doing internally? We are to be honoring Christ, regarding him as holy. That's how we sanctify him. Just, just like we bless God when we honor him as worthy, we sanctify Christ when we honor him as holy. You know, we, we bless God. We normally think about God blessing us. But when we bless God, we're saying we, we honor you as the one who's worthy. And when we sanctify Christ, we're saying we honor you as the one who is holy. And this was the context of Isaiah chapter 8 where this passage was quoted from. You know, it is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. So to sanctify Christ is about setting him apart as supreme in your thinking. Is that how you regard Jesus Christ? Do you, do you regard him as Lord? We sang about uh, just a little earlier uh, in the, the song that the Chuck sang uh, for us about the, the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Do, do you regard Jesus Christ as having the preeminent place, the supreme place? Do you view Jesus Christ, as Thomas said, as my Lord and my God? Because that's the necessary requirement to taking a stand for Jesus Christ. Elevating him in your mind now prepares you to take a stand for him. And we need to have a greater fear of God than for anybody else. Now, back in Exodus chapter 19, if you remember uh, that passage where Israel was given the, the law of God, uh, it speaks about in, uh, in Exodus how uh, Moses came to, to Mount Sinai and there was smoke and fire. There was a loud sound of a trumpet that grew louder and louder and Moses spoke and God answered with thunder. And then the Lord spoke to Moses and says, go down, warn the people so that they do not break through to the Lord. To gaze and many of them perish. There's this terrifying scene at the bottom of Mount Sinai. And then after God thundered from Sinai all the words of the Ten Commandments, in chapter 20 and verse 18, it says, All the people perceived the thunder, the lightning, the flashes, the sound of the trumpet, the mountain smoking. The people saw it. They trembled. They stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself. We will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. Like, Moses, enough is enough. Like, like we'll, we'll listen to you. Just, you. You go and deal with the trumpets and the smoke. Like, we'll just, we'll just hear it from you. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll take the message. And Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. For God has come in order to test you. In order that the fear of him may remain with you. Why? So that you may not sin. If I have a greater fear of God, I will not sin. God was testing them. He was proving them. He was demonstrating before them who he was so that any time they thought about transgressing his law, immediately what would come back to their mind is the fire, the smoke, the lightning, the, the sound of the trumpet. Lord, I, I don't want to transgress your law. And the idea is if you have a greater fear of God, you'll have a greater obedience to God than to anyone else. That's what happens when Christ is supreme in your heart. And now you're prepared to give a defense of the gospel. So if you want to be prepared to defend your, your faith, this is where it all begins. This is, this is the framework. This is the battle plan. It's important that we understand how to stand firm in the face of opposition. It begins with our conduct. We're zealous for good deeds. It's strengthened by our confidence that we don't fear intimidation. It's bound by our commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord. We set him apart as Lord in our hearts. And as a result of that, we're now prepared to give communication, to, to make a ready defense, the, the content of our defense. And it centers on hope. And what's important that we understand here is what Peter means by making this defense. Who is supposed to be ready to make this defense? Let's ask ourselves a couple questions. Who's to, to make this defense? We're to give a defense for our hope. Who is to make this defense? Simple question. 
Simple answer, who is the letter addressed to? The entire church. Everybody is to be able to make a defense. This is a book that's written to multiple people across a wide geographical area. So this is not given to just a a few elite debaters that you defend the faith. You know, this is not given to the to the, to the James Whites and the Vody Bacchums and the Josh McDowells of the world. You know, like you just let them defend the faith for you. That's, that's not what it's saying here. You know, obviously there's some people who are, you know, more skilled at apologetics, uh, but there's nothing in the Bible as, such as the gift of apologetics. I just have the gift of defending the faith. No, everybody is to defend the faith. This is for everybody. Second question, when are we supposed to make this defense of the gospel? Simple question, another simple answer. Always, always be ready at all times. That word always could be translated as unceasingly. You're never supposed to have a time when you're not prepared to give a defense for your hope. This is not one of those things that you need to go home and research. You shouldn't have to do a Google search to defend the faith. You don't need to wait until next Sunday so you can check in with your pastor. You know, wait for that next Sunday school class on Surviving Religion 101. I'll get the answers then. If I'll wait until I finish that book, you know, I'll finally have an opportunity to give a defense. No, you're not to wait for that. Always be ready. And to whom are we to make this defense? Another question that's easy to answer. Everybody. We're to be prepared to give an answer to everybody. The only qualification is if they ask. If they ask you for the hope, you're supposed to be able to give them a reasoned defense for your hope. And that could be somebody who's religious or irreligious. Could be somebody who's moral or immoral. Could be somebody who's young, somebody who's old, somebody who's well-educated with multiple degrees, somebody who's dropped out of school and is homeless in a shelter. It doesn't matter. Anybody that asks you for a reason for your hope, you're to be prepared to give them an answer. And the beliefs that we have even right here in Baltimore are so varied, aren't they? So, So many different views out there. You know, the mainline Protestants, Catholic, Mormon, Orthodox, Christian, Jehovah's Witness, Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, the unaffiliated, there's actually a group called the nuns, not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S, nuns. I have no affiliation with any religion. Actually, they're the, the, the highest uh, uh, grouping, uh, one of the highest groupings in, in Baltimore, the nuns. Atheist, agnostic, not to mention all the heretical branches that we have, like the Hebrew Israelites, the, uh, the Hebrew roots movement that some of our members got caught up in, every other ism and schism that we haven't even heard about before. I remember studying in a, a library one day and uh, uh, started witnessing to a, to a guy that was there, and he says, well, I'm, I'm part of the order of Melchizedek. And I'm like, what in the world is that? Or, order of the Melchizedek, what, what are you talking about? You know, he's mentioned one time in Genesis, one time in the book of Psalms, and in the, the book of, of Hebrews, it says that Christ replaced them. What are you talking about that you're of the order of Melchizedek? And it can be paralyzing when you think about all the different views that are out there about religion and what kind of questions could come up. I mean, I'm, I'm just frightened about what I could be asked. You know, I remember when I was new to Christianity, when I had just become a believer, I actually, uh, uh, I actually anchored to my wall uh, like this file cabinet. You know, it's just like a, a letter organizer. I anchored it to the wall. And every time I learned something new about a new religion, I'd kind of like make a little little uh, space, you know, market, like, okay, that's for the Jehovah's Witnesses, and I fill that up, and that's for the Mormons, I fill that up. And pretty soon you realize, like, this wall ain't big enough <laughs> to fit all the things that I'm going to find about all these other religions. I mean, it's like, now I got to make a, a file for the order of Melchizedek. I haven't even heard of that before. 
Do you have to be a master of heresy? Every heresy known to man before you can obey this verse. And the answer is no. (laughs) No. You don't have to know what everybody believes, every question that will ever come up. And some of you are paralyzed by thinking, like, I can't defend the faith because I don't know what I'm going to be asked. Like, I, I might have to go home and research this, and who knows where I can even find the answer. How can I keep up with every twist and turn that religions take? You can't. But what you can do is you can give them a reason for why I have hope. Why do I have hope? Do you know how liberating that is? That that's what you're called to do? I'm just supposed to give you a reason why I hope. It's not that I can convince you. It's not that I can answer every question. Let me just tell you why I hope in Jesus Christ. Let me tell you why I have a confidence in being forgiven of my sins. Let me tell you why I know with a, a, a certainty that I'm going to heaven. Let me tell you why. I can give you a reason for my hope. I remember the, the first time I met John MacArthur was out at a Sandy Cove in Northeast Maryland. And I remember telling him back then, I want to be an apologist. You know, I want to just kind of, you know, refute all the, the religions. And, you know, I was caught up in a false religion. I want to help other people who are caught up in false religion. And uh, he gave me this advice, which was really helpful. He says, become as familiar as you can with the truth. Become as familiar as you can with the truth. Because if you know what you believe, you can start to spot the counterfeits. You don't need to be an expert in heresy to defend the truth. And the way that Peter phrases this is really surprising. Because we would have expected him to say, be prepared to give a reason for your faith. Right? That's, that's probably how we'd expect him to say it. But that's not what he says. He says, be prepared to give a reason for your hope. The hope that is in you. And it's significant that he phrases it this way. The the word hope in Scripture is used to to speak about a a certainty based on God's faithfulness. There's an expectation based on God's character. You know, it's it's an anchor for the soul, Hebrews 6 speaks about. It's not wishful thinking. It's not saying, like, I I hope it it doesn't rain tomorrow. Or or I hope the Ravens go to the Super Bowl. Or I I hope that the Orioles win the World Series. That's, That's not a hope. That's fantasy baseball, okay? The, the hope, the confident expectation that we have is based on the word and the character of God. It's an expectation, an anticipation, but based on what we know to be true. It's, it's like the, the child who's been promised that, you know, I'm going to give you this on your birthday, and he already starts making plans and preparations for it, you know, because he knows that he's going to get it. He has that expectation. He's hoping for what is already promised to him, and that's what we have. We have a a hope, an expectation based on what's already been promised to us. So it's a personal hope. This is a hope that's in you. And it's also an observable hope. And why do I say that? Because somebody is asking you for a reason for it. Why would they ask you for a reason for your hope if it's not evident that you have hope? And it's sad to say that a lot of Christians today appear to be hopeless. Hopeless. Like Ephesians 2.12 says, having no hope and without God in the world. And sometimes that's how Christians act. Like, like we have no more hope than the world around us. One of my favorite stories about Martin Luther was about his wife, Katie Von Bora. And uh, during a difficult period in their lives, Martin Luther was carrying many burdens, fighting many battles. You know, he's usually you know, a person of, uh, full of joy. But at this time, he was depressed. He's worried. And Katie, his wife, endured this for days and days. And then One day she just had enough and she met him at the door wearing a black funeral dress for mourning the dead. 
And uh, as Martin Luther comes to the house, he's like, like, Katie, who, who died? You know, who, who's, who, who died? And she says, God did. <laughs> he says, you foolish thing. Why, why this foolishness? Saying that God is dead. But she says, it's true, Luther. It's true. God must have died or Dr. Luther would not be so sorrowful. And since you act like God is dead, I wanted to join you in mourning his death. Luther got the message and recovered. <laughs> a lot of us walk around as if we don't have any more hope than the world around us. Our own uh, Isaac and Sarah Green wrote a, a helpful blog post that said, worry changes our perception of who we are in Christ and who God is for us. When we worry, we choose to believe that we're not cared for, that our lives are outside of God's control, that we can somehow fix circumstances by dwelling on them in an anxious way. We trade what we know to be true about the character of God for a lie, a lie that seeks to persuade us that God is blind to our circumstances, unloving, uncaring, and not powerful enough to provide for us. Thus, worry at its core, like so many other sins, is a trading of truth for a lie about who we are and who God is. A lot of us act as if God has died. Is it apparent to the people around you that you have a hope that they don't have? Do, do people ever look at you and wonder, like, why, why do you act that way? Like, I know what you're going through, but why are you acting this way? It doesn't, it doesn't seem to match what you're going through. What's different about the way that you've responded to the last two years than the way the world has responded to the last two years? Would anybody approach you and say, you seem to be pretty confident What's, what's the reason for your hope? Or does your response look identical to theirs? It's a great question, isn't it? But even when we're targeted because of our hope and mistreated because of our faith, we refuse to be intimidated by that. It's actually a signal to the world around us that our hope is not in this life. Do you get that? So like, like when you're under the, the pressure, you know, you're in the pressure cooker, you're, you're really feeling it but you don't respond like everybody else responds. That's, that's like a signal to the world that like, I'm, I'm different. <laughs> I, I don't just belong to this earth. There's something else that I'm looking forward to. I have a hope that you don't have. You know, over in uh, Philippians chapter one, verse 28 to 29, it reminds us that the way we strive for the faith of the gospel is to be in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but is of salvation for you and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. My, my willingness to suffer, my willingness to endure, proves that my hope is not in this life, but it's in the next. It's in the next. And it should make the world around us scratch their heads and ask the question, why? Why do you have this hope? And that provides the, the context that sets the table for us to give a defense. Let me tell you why. Let me tell you why I have this hope. That word for defense in verse 15 is the, the word apologia. It, it doesn't mean that we apologize for the faith. We're not sorry that we're Christians. But we give an apologetic, a defense, an explanation, a vindication of any charges, vindication of the truth. Now, one theologian, Robert Raymond, defines Christian apologetics as the, the discipline wherein an intelligent effort is made to defend before an unbelieving world the truth claim of the Christian faith, specifically its claim of exclusive true knowledge of the living and true God in a manner consistent with the teachings of Scripture. Uh, Clifford McManus, in his uh, book, Biblical Apologetics, and I definitely would commend that to you, he writes this, he says, I define biblical apologetics as follows. The biblical mandate for every Christian 
to advance and defend the gospel of Jesus Christ as they live the Christian life in the power of the Holy Spirit by exposing and subjecting all contrary beliefs to Christ's revelation as found in Scripture. So, so what we're talking about in apologetics is a reasonable defense of your hope that, listen to this, is grounded in the truth of Scripture, grounded in the revelation of God. And why do I say that? Why is it grounded in the revelation of God? Think back to the context, because often people disconnect this from apologetics. How many times have you heard somebody say that, you know, I, I want to give a reasonable defense for Christianity today, but, you know, the, the one thing that I'm not going to use is the Bible. But I, I just want to give you a reason for our faith. You know, I, I'm going to give you reasons, and I'm not going to refer at all to what Jesus had to say about it. You know, but I'm going to give you a reasoned defense. Like, what are you talking about? I, I like what uh, Vody Bakum said. It's like, you know, you show up to a sword fight. And uh, the guy who's your opponent says, you know what, I don't believe in your sword. You're like, oh, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll just put this away, you know. It's like, no, what are, what are you talking about? You don't believe in my sword? Well, take that, <laughs> right? You pull it out. Don't drop your greatest weapon, you know, when you have an opportunity. It's like, and Christians all over the place, it's like, well, let me, I, I can't use the Bible to defend the Bible. You know, that's your greatest weapon. What are you doing? Now you're going to get on the level playing field with them and argue from human reason? That's not how we operate. And I say that it's based on Scripture. And think about this. Think about the context of 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3, back, in, um, uh, back up in, in verse 14, it gives a quotation from Isaiah chapter 8. Remember we talked about that earlier? It says, do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. That's in the context of 1 Peter 3 and 15, the verse before you know, think about the context, verse before, verse after. It all ties in together, okay? So, the nation of Judah was to believe and trust in the word of God. Are you following me? Where did their hope come from? The nation of Judah was facing real fears, real enemies. There was a, a nation of Syria and Israel to the north that was threatening war against them. And Isaiah says, take care, be calm, don't have any fear, don't be faint-hearted, don't worry about it. Now, what was this nation to rely on at that moment? Were they to rely on evidentialism? You know, could they rely on empirical evidence, verifiable, observable experience? What they're observing is the nation is getting ready to, to war. <laughs> like, that's the evidence that they're seeing. It's not based on the evidence. How about rationalism? You know, could they rely on rational arguments, independent reasoning? No, it would have been reasonable to assume that if an army is to the north, that they're coming in. <laughs> they're getting prepared for war. And if we don't have a bigger army than they do, we're going to lose. Like, that would be reasonable. That's rational, right? How about um, fideism? You know, fide comes from the, the word for, for faith, you know, sola fide. Fideism is a, a belief that we ground belief in belief itself. You know, just because I believe, you know, my faith in my faith, you know, I just believe. You know, uh, around Baltimore, there are, you know, these different signs a couple years ago, just believe, 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 hon, believe, right? But, but what am I believing in? You know, there's, there's no content for the belief. It's just believe, just believe, believe, hon. I, I need to know what I'm believing in. It's not just faith in faith. It's not just because I believe. You know, it's not like the, the Mormons who say, you know, just, just, just feel the burning in your bosom, and believe. No, I can't just feel the burning in my bosom and believe. That might be what I had last night, right? 
Like, I, I need to have some kind of content. So what did the nation of Judah have to rely on? It was the revelation of God. They had to rely on the word of the Lord who had spoken. Isaiah 7, 4 says, take care, be calm, have no fear, do not be faint-hearted. And you know what? They had to believe that revelation. What would they be expected to say if somebody says, what's, what's the reason that you're hoping that this nation up to the north isn't going to come down and like just, just totally annihilate you? What, what kind of reason are you going to give me for that? You, you see the nation. I mean, it's evident. It's like the evidence is in. I mean, only a rational person would fear this nation. Why are you hoping that that won't happen to you? Maybe they would say something like this. God has revealed that he would deliver us, and he's completely trustworthy. He's a God who cannot lie, and that's why I have hope. Or maybe it's something like this. It's clear that Isaiah has been recognized and identified as a, a prophet who speaks with the authority of God. He speaks consistently with previous revelation, and every word that he has spoken is completely reliable, and I trust in the word of God, and that's why I have hope. Their hope would have come from the revelation of God and not on the reasoning or experience of men. It's, it's from the top down, God down to us, not from the bottom up. Now, we figure it out, and then we'll eventually work our way to God. No, it's God coming down, giving us his revelation. And that's such an important observation to make because so many popular views on apologetics begin with man. What can we determine and figure out apart from the revelation of God and Scripture? You know, I'm just going to give this reasonable defense and not use the Bible, not refer to the Bible, not refer to the past revelation. I'm just going to, going to stand on my own reasoning and go toe-to-toe with you. I, I just saw a debate last night where it's exactly what the debater said. I'm going to give you a reasonable defense, and I will not refer to my Bible. You know, just put that Bible away. And let's just, you know, reason back to Christ. What are you talking about? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Obviously, I'm going to use the word of God. That's my presupposition. I believe God has spoken. I can demonstrate why God has spoken. We, we, we trust in the word of God. The nation of Judah could give no other reason for their hope other than God has spoken. And in a similar way, when you try to share with people the reason for your hope apart from scripture, you've put your most powerful weapon away. But what if that believer is not convinced? Now, I gave him my defense. I, I gave him the reason that I have hope, but uh, he doesn't believe it. We'll get more into that next time. <laughs> we'll get more into that next time. Because uh, here in First Peter, we find out that that's not your responsibility to make anybody believe. And often, I mean, it's, I, I remember for me, it was paralyzing. It's like, like, why can't I say, I mean, it's like, did I just not find the right verse? Did I not find the right evidence? Like, did I not read the right book? Like, there's something that I can say to just push this person over and, and make them believe. Like, I, I just couldn't give them a good enough reason. But what does that then rely on? That relies on my intellect, my rationality, my ability to argue. Now I'm relying on who? I'm relying on me. But how does God say that people come to faith? It's through the word of God and through the spirit of God. So if I trust him, what am I going to use? I'm going to use the word of God, and I'm going to rely on the spirit of God. And that is going to be my defense. That is going to be my defense, and it's not irrational to believe in God. You're not commanded to convince anybody to believe. You're just supposed to give the reason why you believe. See the difference? You're supposed to give you a reason why I have hope. 
And we'll get into some more of the specific examples of how we defend our hope uh, the next time we get together. But uh, there's a certain kind of tone that we should defend the faith in. And sadly, this is one of the aspects of defending the faith that is violated all the time. How are we to defend our hope? Verse 15, with gentleness and reverence. We're to defend the faith without becoming defensive. And at this point, apologists all over the world should be pulling out the dagger because this is one that stings. It relates to our character. How many people do you know who are engaged in apologetics that give, have the gift of sarcasm? They make it their, their full-time job to be as offensive and mean-spirited and as disrespectful as they possibly can. You know, it's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disrespect you into the kingdom. I'm going to shame you into the kingdom. I'm going to make you feel so low you will grovel at my knees and beg me to point the way to the kingdom. I mean, that's, that's how it happens, right? No, it does not. And Titus warns us that even when we're dealing with foolish and disobedient men, we're not to malign anyone. We're to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Does that, does that characterize a lot of the apologists that you listen to? Gentleness, reverence. Word for gentleness was used in secular Greek for the taming of an animal, uh, uh, an animal who could be harnessed. It was used for a ruler who could have been stern, but he showed restraint. It was used of a judge when he could have given out a severe penalty, but he withheld that penalty. And Paul used the word in this way in 1 Corinthians 4, 21, when he said, what do you desire? Shall I come to you with the rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? What Paul is saying is that I have the authority and the ability to strike with the rod, but I'm going to give you a chance. And a gentle person knows how to pull back and let off the gas. I'm just not going to, you know, as, as much as I can, you know, just berate you until, you know, you, you, uh, you, you just cry uncle. There's actually a Christian apologist I used to listen to on the radio. And I remember uh, benefiting from him greatly in, uh, in years past. But um, after listening to him for a while, it's just like he became so harsh and critical. I just couldn't listen to him anymore. <laughs> It's like, I just, I just can't take it. It's like everybody who called in, it was like they were the enemy. And he was just going to, you know, pounce on them with all fours. Like, this is the worst heretic in the world, and you're going to know. And it's like, like dude, what, what's going on? I mean, people are asking, like, honest questions out here. This became so harsh and critical. It's like, I, I, I couldn't listen to him anymore. I actually started feeling bad for the people who called. And I'm not saying that there's never a time for the ride, because, you know, even Paul you know, pulled out the rod. He's speaking about the Judaizers in Philippians chapter 3. He says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. You know, the, the normal word for circumcision is uh, peritome, which means to cut around. And uh, false circumcision, Paul uses the word katatome, which means to cut down or to cut against. It's a pretty strong and graphic language if you understand what circumcision is talking about. But the same people who Paul called dogs and evil workers. In chapter 3 and verse 18, he also wept for them. He says, For many walk of whom I've often told you, and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul wept for his opponents. Is that, is that what you do? The people who, who oppose the gospel of Jesus Christ, do you, do you ever shed tears for the people who are opposing themselves, opposing the faith? There was a gentleness that, that Paul had. There was also a sense of fear, and the, the context points to this fear being directed towards God. And why do I say that? Because in verse 14, he had just said, do not fear their intimidation, do not be troubled. So he's not turning around now and saying, fear them. You know, we're not to live in fear of men, but Peter says we're to address the Father, verse 17 of chapter 1, 
who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. And keep in mind that the Father who saves me is also the judge who will evaluate me. And he knows how I respond to people. You know, there's a measure of fear associated with, you know, knowing I have to stand before the Lord one day. My mom told me that when she was young, her brothers and sisters would uh, climb up a tree and everybody, and they'd be like the lookout for when dad was coming. There, There was an account to give. And uh, we need to be careful. We need to understand that there's, there's one day that I'm going to stand before God and give an account for how I treat people. That's the kind of attitude you're to defend the faith in. We're to be careful that we don't become like the sons of thunder who wanted to call down fire on a Samaritan village because they didn't receive Jesus. Remember that? You know, the disciples, James and John, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down, consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. I heard one apologist, he said, I'm not trying to save souls, I'm trying to destroy a heretic. That's not the kind of attitude we were to have. That's enough for today. We'll save the rest for, uh, for the next time that we're together. But um, we're to think about uh, this unchanging word, this unchanging word. We're to be unchangeable in our conduct. We're to live in good works. We're to be unyielding in our confidence. We're to be unswerving in our commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord. We're to be unbending in our communication. We're not deviating from the truth of God's word. Unwavering in our character, and we'll look at this next time, uncompromised in our conscience. We don't need to shame ourselves while we're trying to exalt the Savior. And uh, we'll look more at that the, the next time that we, uh, we get together. But let's uh, go ahead and uh, bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and uh, there's so much more that's contained here. And uh, Father, I just pray that you would uh, use these words in our lives, that you would challenge us, convict us. Uh, Father, there's uh, so much that we can learn about uh, what it means to, uh, to defend the hope that lies within us. Uh, Father, I pray that you'd help us to, to grow in that. And uh, Father, that you would give us opportunities to, uh, uh, to speak words for you. Uh, Father, that we would speak the truth, uh, that we would defend the, the truth from the revelation of, of God not from our own wisdom and insights and evidences and, and rationality. Now, Father, I pray that uh, we would rely on, on you as the, the wisdom above all wisdom, that you are the God of all wisdom and insight. Why would we not rely on you and, and bring forward the words that you have spoken? Your words have much more power than ours. So, Father, I pray that we would trust in your words. And, Father, that even when we suffer persecution, when we're maligned, when we're mistreated, when we're reviled for the sake of righteousness. Uh, Father, I pray that, uh, that we would not uh, cower underneath that, uh, but that we would understand that the suffering that comes to us by the hand of, of God is a necessary suffering, and that if we're suffering for the sake of, of righteousness, Lord, that we're to consider ourselves blessed, and that right there we have the opportunity to stand for Christ. Help us where we might be today to stand where we are for the sake of Jesus Christ, that the world might know that we have a hope that's beyond this life. Now, Father, I pray that you would make that true of every one of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events or where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. 
Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating CDs and all digital files.